and welcome to the Life Vineyard Church podcast. In this episode, Tom continues our series looking at Ephesians, exploring chapter 4 and the cost of following Jesus and accepting his calling on your life. We continue our series. We're going to see how Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, gives us some fundamentals about how we can measure the health of a church and see how we are doing in our apprenticeship to Jesus. So we could ask the question maybe, what is the nature of a healthy church? And Paul really addresses it here. So I'm going to read to us the first 16 verses of chapter 4, and hopefully they should come up on the screen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every kind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when every in each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He was a good writer, was Paul. So as I said, we've reached a point in the letter to the Ephesians where we begin to address the hallmarks of a Christ like church and the context of the whole book is this is that you can break Ephesians into two parts the first part Paul looks at who we are in Christ chapters 1 to 3 and then from chapters 4 to 6 he addresses how we are to live in Christ who we are in Christ and how we are to live in Christ so we have learned that we have been chosen and adopted by God that we are redeemed that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we've been given resurrection power. You may not have felt that this morning as you woke up. We've been brought from death to life by grace through faith. We've been raised and seated with Christ in the heavens. We have been created for good works. And we are a new community in Christ. And that's just a brief summary of those first three chapters. And then as we move into this second half of the letter, we are told to pursue unity and purity in Christ to submit and be stable in Christ. We must stand against the enemy and we must not lose our first love. So chapter four, you can sort of see is the hinge point 
of the book, the volta, the turn where Paul shifts from who we are in Christ to how we are to live. And so the 16 verses that I just read to you, you could summarize like this. We are to pursue spiritual unity. Spiritual unity, unity, because we are united in our calling. We should be united in our conduct and united in the gospel. Secondly, we should have spiritual diversity in our community. Diverse gifts, diverse responsibilities. We are to be a diverse community. And lastly, we are to pursue spiritual maturity. Spiritual unity, spiritual diversity, and spiritual maturity. And as I began to prepare this talk, I got a bit stuck on verse 1. And so I'm actually only going to look at verse 1 today. So I've got homework for you all to go away and read this chapter this week because there is so much wonderful stuff in there. And I know as you read it, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. Gosh, isn't it hard to pursue all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing one another in love, I've normally failed most of those by about 7.45 in the morning. So you can go away and read chapter 4. But today I'm going to focus on verse 1 for us. And Paul begins with the word, therefore. Now I was of the generation who didn't get taught grammar at school. So I had to look up what therefore is. I'm really sorry. Uh, But when we read a word like therefore, which I think is a conjunctive adverb. I could have just pretended that I knew that. uh, But... That would have been a lie. So, and this is a clear indication that there is currently something going on in this letter. A change is happening. Paul wants us to think about this. In light of what has happened in the first three chapters, this is what should happen as a result. It's a real, it's a real easy point for us to think about. Have I actually got my head around what Paul has been saying in chapters 1 to 3? Because if I haven't, he's saying, therefore, do all of this in light of that. You might want to go back and read it again and think about it and grapple with it. And what's amazing about Ephesians is this, is that in doing this sort of division, Paul is saying to us, there can never be a separation of right doctrine from right living. We can never separate right doctrine from right living. And sadly, lots of people try to do that. But if they do it, they are missing the heart of our faith. And I wonder this morning if we are guilty of doing that sometimes in our lives. Are we guilty of separating our beliefs from our actions? You might be a person that feels naturally drawn towards doctrine and theology. Maybe you you enjoy reading Bible commentaries and reading the, the new hip trendy theologians that are writing. And if that's you, I want to say that's really, really good and keep doing it. But don't do it at the expense of the practice of your faith. Putting it a little brutally, there are lots of academics in the world that know the Bible inside out, but don't know Jesus too well. We want the head knowledge, but we want it to be lived out in our lives. Or maybe you're someone that feels drawn to more being a doer. You like action. You like being involved. You love serving. You like living it out. And again, I say to you, that is really, really great. But don't do that at the sake of having strong theological foundations under what you do. Isn't the world crying out for people, that li- Christians, that live out the faith they believe? When we see scandal after scandal and celebrity pastors messing up, the world loves to throw the accusation that we are hypocrites at us. Let's be people that unite the two, 
in our lives. So let's look at that first verse. I'll read it again. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So as I say, he begins with the word, therefore, and he spent those three chapters looking at who we are in Christ and now who we are to live. And this word, therefore, is really significant because it gives us a massive difference between Christianity and all other faiths, all other belief system. Because you see, in every other religion, the burden of responsibility for morality rests on those who believe in it. Live a right life or karma will catch up with you. Live a right life to secure your place in the afterlife. Live a right life to keep the God who is angry happy. But in Christianity, we don't begin with moral demands, with ethical standards. We begin with Christ and what he has done for us. We know no God who demands that we correct ourselves. We know no God who demands that we clear up our own mess. We know a God who came into our mess and made a way through his own sacrifice so that we would be washed clean and come into relationship with him. And that is why Paul begins with who we are in Christ, because that is our starting point. In Ephesians 2, we heard this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The pressure's off. You don't have to sort it out yourself. I recently, we, we have two daughters. The youngest uh, is three, and she's out of nappies in the day, but, you know, occasionally she doesn't quite make it to the toilet in time. And um, I had probably one of the top five messiest um, incidents recently, and um, she was lo- looking at me, and I'm just freaking out, and um, Hannah wasn't in the house, and I'm looking at her, and she just looked at me, and she went, make me clean, Daddy. And it made me sort of want to tear up. And I suddenly, in that moment, I was so like, don't get it on the carpet. And, oh, I can't believe this. And I suddenly thought, that's me. That's me and God. And I make such a mess. And God comes and cleans me up. And I don't know why I'm getting emotional about that. But I just think it's, it, it was like one of those moments where suddenly the gospel just invaded my day. And it was still a real pain to clear up. But I had that moment where I was like, that's me. I make a mess and I have no way of clearing it up unless God comes and does it for me. Therefore, what a great word. I didn't think I'd spend that much long on on one word. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul identifies himself as a prisoner. In other translations, it says a prisoner of the Lord. So this was both a true statement because he literally was in prison as he wrote this letter. But I also think it's true metaphorically because Paul had been so arrested by Jesus that God had captured his entire life. He was a prisoner of the Lord. Everything in his life had been taken over by Jesus. And it was also true. And Paul often reminded his readers of the price that he had paid for the gospel. 
And it wasn't to lord it over them or to, just to get some sort of kudos or anything like that. He did it because he wanted to remind them that the gospel comes at a price. And he says, look, I have paid this price for the gospel. So too, you should as well. Give your all in your service of Jesus. None of us would want to listen to a preacher that we thought was hypocritical. Don't, don't tell me if, if you think I am. We want people to lead us who show us and live by example. And Paul is doing that there. The gospel wasn't a detached theory for Paul. It wasn't a sort of philosophical pleasure that he loved to talk about. He had suffered. In 1 Corinthians 4, he says this, that he has hungered and thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, and had become like the scum of the earth for the gospel. He was a prisoner for the Lord, and he's saying, this is what it has cost me. I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. Paul is urging us to do something here. He's not advising us. He doesn't say, I, I suggest or I propose. Paul's urging us. This is an imperative. And the Greek word for urge is parakaleo. And it means to summon to one side, to address, to exhort. This is Paul almost begging his readers to consolidate and strengthen their position in Christ and to take this stuff seriously. Maybe he would write, how am I? Listen up and take this stuff seriously. And what does he urge us to do? He urges us to walk. And this is a metaphor Paul would often use later in, this, in Ephesians. In chapter 5, he says, walk in love. He says, walk as children of light. He says, walk not as unwise, but as wise. And I want to say this to you. The Christian life is a walk. It's not a sprint. It's not a relay race where you can just sort of tag in and out. It's a walk from the moment you meet Christ to the moment you meet him again face to face. And the mountain top moments are glorious and we love them. But I think it's fair to say most of the time we're walking in valleys. And often the most important thing we can do is keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep walking. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't turn around. Keep on walking. And the beauty of that is it doesn't matter where you are now in your walk with Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've known him a day, a year. It doesn't matter if you've spent the last 10 years running away from him. Because we can all can turn and face him and begin to walk. And God has set before each one of us a different path to walk, a different race to run. And none of us, I think, can stand before God and argue with his plan for us because he's God. What we are called to do is to walk it and not to compare, not to compare with other people, not to condemn yourself when you stumble along the way. Walk the path that he has given you. Walking involves movement. It is proactive. The great Martin Luther King said this, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, keep moving forward. 
In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, We will not boast beyond our limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us. And I love this, because what it means is this, there is grace for your race. There is grace for your race. God will give you the grace that you need to walk your path. And it will be different to everyone else's. He has set your path before you, and he will give you the grace to walk it. We get into trouble when we step outside of that. But Paul is urging us to walk the path that God has set before us. And how does Paul want us to walk? Well, he says this, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this idea of calling is so central to the whole letter of Ephesians. Paul has spent... The whole book telling us who we are in Jesus. That is your calling. And I'm sorry to say you don't have a choice. (laughs) If you know and love Jesus, then immediately you get a whole bunch of things credited to your account. And Paul has told us what they are. But it doesn't stop there. We don't just sit down. We walk in a manner worthy of which we have been called. The King James Version calls this vocation rather than calling, and I think that's helpful. Because our calling to Christ is not a seasonal thing. It's not like, you know, Easter eggs that come in for, well, increasingly longer and longer, or, you know, this is not a seasonal thing. We bought a massive Easter egg at Costco yesterday, sorry. That was on my mind. Uh, It's not a seasonal thing. It's a vocation. It is a life calling to follow Jesus. Let him take hold of you and follow him. Philippians 1 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 2, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Walk your path and live your life in a manner worthy of the calling that God has placed on your life. In a manner worthy of what Christ has done for you. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this morning, I want to say to you this. I think the Lord is here this morning to invite us to step further into that calling that he has laid on our lives. I want to say to you this, that I think there is a higher calling for us to say yes to today. A few uh, weeks ago, you may have been here, me and my wife, Hannah, we we shared the news that we're going to be moving to Denver, Colorado, later this year. And amidst all of the emotions of that, I have like such, I feel like a burden in me to try and encourage you all as much as I can before I leave, and then you'll all be happy. But my, my, my heart burns to see everyone in this room walk in a manner worthy of the calling that Christ has set before them. To step into the fullness of what Jesus has for you. And that doesn't mean it's, it's easy and we don't mess up. Of course not. But I look around the room and I see so much potential, so much possibility. And I want us to say yes to that. 
And when you read the New Testament, there can be no doubt in your mind that saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to suffering, to loss, to sacrifice. You can't escape that. But it's never wasted. It's never wasted. And the fullness of life that comes with saying yes to God cannot be matched by anything else. Nothing comes close. The Spanish priest and theologian, St. Ignatius of Loyola, it's a good name, said this, Few souls understand what God would accomplish in them if they were to abandon themselves unreservedly to him and if they were to allow his grace to mould them accordingly. I'll read it again. Few souls understand what God would accomplish in them if they were to abandon themselves unreservedly to him and if they were to allow his grace to mould them accordingly. Maybe this this morning we could abandon ourselves a little bit more to what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Maybe right now the Holy Spirit is beginning to whisper to you a way in which you could walk more fully in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 